0: String Hub, Uh, this is episode 147, Vlad and I were just discussing, if you guys are new here, welcome, this is a less than normal show, this is our end of the year finale for 2023 that we are talking about, so it is Vlad and I putting each other on the hot seats if you will, as opposed to us putting a guest on the hot seat so if you guys are new here welcome if you guys have been here before welcome back thank you for joining us thank you for all of our longtime listeners and viewers for watching us just about every week something like 57 times uh, over the course of this year and it has been an awesome year all the way around we've got a couple of topics that we want to touch on things that have happened this year for us personally on, on the business side on the personal side Some awesome things on the Manufacturing Hub side that we have done. Vlad and I have picked out a couple of episodes that we want to highlight. We've picked out a couple of episodes that we want to highlight. And then we've got some predictions and fun things beyond that for what we think 2024 is. And if you guys want to go watch and or listen to some more stuff, we will have similar recommendations that we ask all of our guests for every week. Having said that, Vlad, do you, do you want to go ahead and kick off? Maybe tell everyone a little bit about what you're doing if they haven't caught one of the like two episodes that we've talked about that over the course of the year in the show.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I guess to kick that off, there's a couple of initiatives that I've been running or am a part of in 2023. So the main one outside of manufacturing hub is of course Solus PLC. So that is a industrial automation training website. We've had a lot of content on the PLC, HMI, and SCADA sides for a while, and this year we've released also a full course or curriculum on Siemens and Fanuc. So you can find mm-hmm. all of that and more on solasplc.com. And then some other milestones that I guess we're very proud of is the community slash the newsletter that we've built. So this year it has reached over twenty-one thousand uh, subscribers. So we continue to send out weekly updates. It's both some of the tutorials that we publish, but it's also content from the industrial automation industry as well. And like I said, if you go on the website, which is solosplc.com, you can find a variety of both paid and uh, free resources for anyone that is in industrial automation
0: awesome Uh, i guess question on that flat is i know we've talked in the past and the kind of vast majority of the people that find Solus plc is for the the rockwell stuff that that you very much created Solus plc based upon what sort of trends are you seeing with some of the phoenix contact uh courses that you built i think it was starting last year some of the siemens courses that you've built some of these new fanic courses are you finding that there's lots of people who are interested in these other technologies or is it still very much kind of core legacy technologies that we see in North America?
1: Yeah, so I would say that our, I want to say most of our traffic comes from North America, hence the reason why they Mm -hmm. primarily or at first look for Alan Bradley topics that we've covered in the last couple of years. But what we see more and more is on the enterprise side, I want to say due to the pandemic but also because they want to de-risk i want to say like the long waiting times on some of Mm -hmm. their hardware and software solutions they started dabbling in other courses right so a lot of times now when we have a large customer they're no longer just purely on allen bradley right they will have small Mm -hmm. areas of their factory that run on other controllers or platforms or they're putting them into r d so they will typically watch the Alan Bradley stuff, but they will also request other platforms. So that could be Siemens, that could be Phoenix Contact, Opto22. I see a lot more back off, which is something we've not necessarily covered, but I know that Jacob Sagatowski has a pretty good Mm -hmm. course on YouTube for free on it. And Mm -hmm. so those platforms, I think, are picking up steam. But again, I don't have enough experience personally uh, to comment on that, but at least our customers are asking for more content there as well.
0: Very interesting. Very interesting. I'm happy to hear that more people are looking for it both on the personal side as well as hopefully on the enterprise side of we need to expand and grow the the core knowledge base.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And if I can follow up with the next initiative, so you're very familiar with it as we've talked many times. So that is Kernel, which is a SaaS platform essentially to help developers troubleshoot their systems a little bit better. So to deliver code in a more cohesive and better way with less errors. So it's a very interesting initiative in a way. If I was to bring it back to someone who understands industrial automation, there's a, let's call it maintenance department, which is composed of SRE or site reliability engineers, as well as people in DevOps. And again, they're different, I want to say, than what you would call a maintenance department, but they are essentially what I would call the best analogy for a maintenance department for the software systems world. And so the idea is to bring them the right tools in order to help them facilitate to do that job. If I was to put it for someone who comes with a background in industrial automation, on that side, we've raised seed funding. So we now have salaries. As you can imagine, it's a startup, so it's definitely nothing glamorous, but we're able to pay ourselves. We're able to work on the the product and we have a couple of contracts signed for pi- for pilots were early adopters in early 2024 so looking forward to that and making good progress on it in 2024.
0: Good I, I as Vlad knows and I don't Vlad I don't remember if we've talked about it on Manufacturing Hub before I have been following this journey that you guys are on for it's been what, like, almost a year and a half at this point. So I've been following this journey yep. and I'm very excited to, to see how it continues and to watch the movements and, and changes that you guys have. I see here in the show notes that there's an MVP release promised in early 2024, and mm-hmm. I am probably most excited out of anyone in the world to go watch this MVP release because Vlad and I have been talking about it for a while.
1: Yeah. And I would say like the comment on that side, my role has changed, I want to say over that year and a half. So I will be doing a bit more content just as I've done with Solus PLC, trying to grow Mm -hmm. a a greater community of DevOps and SRE and platform engineers, sort of creating content just as I've done in the past in 2024 for kernel. And I'm also going to be taking on some product or operational related uh, activities once we have more customers and there's a need to be a bit more involved to understand the true problems, the what they're doing with the product. So I think it's going to be an interesting year, but obviously everything hinges on the product being released. So we'll see how it Absolutely.
0: goes. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. What about on your side? Before we dive into sort of the personal items, what do you have to say for 2023 and maybe what's coming up in early 2024?
0: Absolutely. Well, let me give everyone a bit more of an overview of my myself. If... Could because again one of the things vlad that that i found is you and i don't talk about our backgrounds quite enough so that people come in and aren't necessarily sure of what, what our backgrounds are so if you guys don't know me my name is dave griffith i've spent the last 15 plus years in automation and manufacturing everything from the oem side to the distributor manufacturers rep i ran a systems integration company for two and a half or three years and then for the last four Almost four and a half years, uh, I've run a company called Kaplan solutions a- as a practitioner. And so we do a variety of things and that has morphed a bit over 2023. And the goal is to continue to morph it into, into 2024. We've got some things that we're working on that we can't quite particularly talk about, but in, in 2023 we had we had a couple of buckets, right? So uh, assessments, and if you guys listened towards the beginning of the year, I was talking a bunch about Profit by Design, which is my assessment roadmap, if you will, in order to go down the process in order to help groups find projects. One of the big takeaways, lessons learned, and I'll jump the gun j- just a slight, but in order to tell everyone Vlad, and, and Vlad knows this, is I generally assumed that people would be excited to go find net profitable projects. And I, I can't tell you how many times Vlad probably heard me say that phrase, and I pr- probably for six months because it is very much going and finding projects are important, but until you get to a C-level, CFO, maybe comptroller level, no one is particularly looking at the financial dollars and cents for a reason that I probably will not particularly understand. Did some assessments, did some training and what I like to call enablement on site. I actually have a bunch more of that planned into into 2024. I'm going to expand some of that work, some of that partnership work. And then I work that with a couple of integrators as partners and going and helping to find and deliver and manage some of those projects has been most of the, the large initiatives that I've been doing on the practitioner side. In addition to that, I've done some speaking, I've done some other behind the scenes training, more on the broader industry 4.0 digital transformation. But I see Vlad has at least one question.
1: Yeah. When you say enable enablement training, could you yep. give us some examples of what frameworks or around what kind of, what areas or what problems are businesses looking to solve through that?
0: Absolutely. So. I use the word enablement as opposed to implementation, as opposed to just training, right? Because when I think of implementation or training, I look at that and say, hey, there's probably a very set list of checkboxes that we have to do. So from my perspective, enablement is twofold. It's helping to understand what the problems are because everyone has specific and particular problems. And while most of them fall into generally large buckets of, hey, we would be a better organization if we had these screens or hey we would be a better organization if we had sops and understood our processes and had a connected workforce so that we could go track everything digitally like lots of organizations fall within that bucket the specifics and particulars of actually going to do that is the much more difficult part and so I guess I'm trying to work on some examples that, that I can talk about and not get clients um, upset at me. But first I wanna say thanks to Phil. Phil, I if I remembered the episode that you were on, I, I would call it the episode that you were on. Thank you so much uh, for the Merry Christmas. And then we've got Marcus um, up here also wishing us a happy holidays. While I think about a couple examples, I will say if you guys are watching us live, please feel free to go ahead and drop questions in here I am not seeing any questions on my LinkedIn, but I'm seeing them on the restream, which is a new issue that I haven't particularly had before. So if you guys have questions, is it interesting? This is wild. So I will go show what I see on. Restream, Vlad, you go show them what uh, on LinkedIn. I I guess a, a very particular example is I was working with a client. They manufacture a product that I probably shouldn't particularly talk about, and they had just purchased new lines. And they had purchased new lines, and they didn't go through the process of really understanding all of the requirements of day to day operations. And because of that, they had no maintenance or engineering interfaces. And when I say no maintenance or engineering interfaces, Literally, if I need to go look at interlocks, instead of being able to look at it on an HMI screen, it was, let's go climb a ladder, let's go get a mirror, let's go stick the mirror in the area to see if my interlocks are on or off, because there was literally no other way to do it. They had one guy sitting and watching Logix 5000, basically all day eight hours a day he was just staring at the code in order to see what was on and off because that is how they solved the problem so instead of just going and building a screen it was let's go work with the engineers to help them understand how to go build the screens in this particular instance it was an ignition so let's go help them understand how to build it so that is opposed to we're just going to go build 50 or 100 of these it's, we'll go work with them and spend almost the same amount of time. We'll go build 10 or 15 together and then allow them to go build the rest if and when they need to, so that next time they have the same problem, uh, which is a different problem 10 feet down the line, it becomes, they can go do it themselves. And so for, from my perspective, it the enablement is, let's go help the people that we have working at the facility understand the problem and then teach them to go solve the problem as opposed to keep themselves beholden on the systems integrator or the outside partner or as opposed to just have it be a very frustrating time because they don't have the ability internally or sometimes externally to go solve the problem. Do you use
1: any kind of frameworks, right? So I, I think this to some extent like overlaps a little bit with what you'd call mm-hmm. continuous improvement within yep. the Lean Six Sigma methodology. Is there a framework that you use to approach identifying the problem and then figuring out a solution?
0: So it, it, at this point, it is a fairly loose framework, right? So, so most of the time when I get those calls, it's not Dave us on ignition, Dave us on, on this thing. It's, hey, we have this problem or we have this reoccurring problem. How can we solve it? So it's very much, I get lots of calls for people to, for me to come help them fix their problems. And so when I go and look at fixing or solving the problems, it's we go in, we identify the problem, and then we come up with remediation to go ahead and solve the problem. I would say that kind of a a major differentiating factor for all, all of our listeners is that when, you, when I look at continuous improvement, when I see lots of continuous improvement or CI teams, I look at them and they're always looking for the next 1% or 2% or sometimes half a percent as the continuous improvement. Most of the time when I come in and work with people, it's let's go find 5% or 10% or, or some significant amounts of improvement. It's very much the how can we go shake things up as opposed to slowly continue the process that we've been seeing it time and time again. Interesting.
1: No, I think there's uh, definitely a need for that. Are you planning to do anything differently in 2024? What's your maybe like reflections on that side?
0: Yeah. So I would say on that side in 2023, it was intentional to go cast a, a wider net in some of the things that I was doing that I then I had done previous for a variety of reasons that we don't need to get into on this show so in, in 2024, I have some very specific and particular things that, that I'm working on, none of which I'm quite ready to, to go ahead and release. And I would say beyond that, and Vlad has probably heard me say this, going and trying to drive all of the initiatives and then deliver the vast majority of solutions as a single person, as a single entity, has been, it's been difficult. And so as I go look to to grow, I am working with a couple of additional partners to put some agreements in place to go help in combination of, to to go bring more resources into what I'm doing, as well as to look at some commercialization opportunities for some products and solutions that I think is very interesting. Um, more of that to come in 2024. But we do have Marcus in the, the comments saying that, that he's seeing it the same way, doing something for the customer on whatever topic doesn't really help them in the long run. Yes, it might have more turnover this way when they're coming back, but it's not like they have an unlimited amount of time available. But yeah, Marcus, so I, I see that a lot. And that is why I am going to, to continue down that path. What I have found but with most of the things that I offer is customers very much self-select them in or out exceptionally quickly. People either understand the work that I'm doing and we go through a selection process and we understand the problem or people come to me because they didn't go through this process and now their stuff is broken and we've got to go find solutions. Those are the two groups that that I typically work with. And then there are lots of other groups that the way I work is outside of and perhaps slightly uncomfortable of the way they've always done it before. And if that's the case, we we just don't work together. And that is certainly by design.
1: Transitioning us to maybe big items on the personal side, you have not, they've listed anything. So I guess I'll start and let you uh, fill in. So for me, at least the biggest item was my daughter was born in March. So that was quite an experience. Again, I'm not going to go into all of the details, but I've been asked what life-changing, I want to say, like things mm-hmm. have come out of it. And I think it's, if I was to put it simply, you feel more responsible for someone, which leads you to I guess for better or for worse, to shape up in all areas of your life. I think that's the the more succinct way that I can put it. And out of that, again, so on the exercising and diet side, I've actually, I have taken a couple of steps. So lost 25 pounds since uh, July and uh, hoping to continue down on that path in uh, 2024. I think that oftentimes, as I want to say, uh, road warriors. We don't pay full attention, or I guess when we're younger, it doesn't really matter. And so when you're doing a lot of startups, you're doing FATs, VATs, uh, you travel 80% of the time. It's it's difficult to take care of yourself, not just mentally, but also physically and the nutrition-wise. And so it's important to take a step back, which is what I've done throughout the last few months this year and hope to Keep those practices going into 2024.
0: Awesome. No, I would say congratulations on the baby. Vlad, as you and I have talked about, I, I think that's awesome. I am happy to hear um, that your diet and exercise is, is continuing on the the right path. Hopefully you're not drinking that, that weird green stuff again. I will say if anyone's at a show and is looking for a mild insomniac to go to the gym with them at somewhere between four and six o'clock in the morning, Vlad is absolutely the person that you want to go to. He's going to tell you he's going to sleep till 8, and then you go talk to him at 6.30 and he's already been to the gym. Congratulations on that, Vlad. On my side, I, it, it was a fairly great year. Personally, for everyone that doesn't know, my, my wife and I travel full-time. It's been almost seven years at this point. We finished our set of 50 states a couple of weeks ago. We had a show in Hawaii. At some point, I will go count all the states that I've done manufacturing hub in, or I guess all of the states and provinces that I've done manufacturing hub been flagged but we we finished the those 50 and we spent a couple of weeks in europe on the front end of s and we've gotten to spend a bit more time with with our friends and family back in western new york which overall has been very nice the completing the 50 states and we added nine new national parks to to our current list which was big things that we had wanted to to complete this year we've got some interesting plans for that coming up next year still not quite publicly accessible but i will say going and traveling and going to a bunch of in-person events as we kind of transition to some of the Manufacturing Hub stuff, we went to a couple of in-person events with Manufacturing Hub. I was at Hanover. We went to Automate together. We went to SPS together. And then I went to, I don't know, two or three or four other, other events. And I thought that was a lot of fun. So I certainly think that I will attend a bunch of additional events into 2024, as good ways to to meet and see people and go have conversations that haven't been able to have since generally pre-pandemic. This year was certainly a big trade show year. It felt like a bunch of them came back, and that was a lot of fun. What are your
1: thoughts on the smaller events? I think we talked a little bit about this last episode, Mm -hmm. but you did the... The Tulip one and did the Litmus have an in-person event or that was Hanover mostly, right?
0: They, so Tulip had operations calling, which I thought was awesome. I think Maddie got up on stage at the beginning of operations calling and said something to the effect of our goal is to put so many awesome things here in this one day event. You can't possibly do it in one day. And I would completely agree with that. It was literally impossible to do in one day. And then the following day, they had the digital factory, which is more of an executive event which was also very fun. But yeah, that was that was also very fun. And then Litmus had—I'm going to try to get this right. They had they do Hanover. Hanover for them was their big event, and I was with Litmus for the Hanover event, which was a ton of fun. And then they had Do More with Data Summit, which was online. They had two of them. I think the first one was one day, and then the second one was two half days. I think you and I were at SPS, or it was the week before SPS, and so I I only caught part of that, which was fun. And then, because we're on the topic, they recently launched their Do More With Data Live. They're really doubling down on the branding, which is the podcast, Dave McMorin and Mark, oh, Mark, I forget your last name off the top of my head, I apologize. They just launched it. I was their guest. They launched it last week. I was their guest on episode one, which was a lot of fun. And so we did some of the the largest events and some of the smaller events. I, I think both of them have their pluses and minuses. I am very much for, and hope to attend more of the smaller events in which I can go have a dozen really good conversations with 600 people, as opposed to being in a sea of 20 to 60,000 people over the course of the, the enormity that is some of these European events.
1: Interesting. Interesting. I guess I've not been uh, that involved in the smaller events. So I think there's certainly an opportunity. I also would say that I think that the digital first events make a lot of sense. I've not seen a whole lot of companies do them yet, but I think it's, I guess my comment would be a missed opportunity not to set it up that way. I believe that SDA, Software Defined Automation, had also a small in-person event, but that was in Mm -hmm. in Germany, if I'm not mistaken, or Netherlands, one of those.
0: I'm pretty sure it was in
1: Munich. Okay. And so I'm certainly looking to attend some of those events, but again, it needs to make sense maybe on the commitment side, because I think one day events are like one day of travel on both sides coming Mm -hmm. in and coming out. And so it needs to be interesting enough to fly in versus just tuning into the uh, live feeds, which is what I believe uh, Tulip had even for their event. But I know they didn't have it for all sessions. I I watched some of the sessions, but not all sessions for some reason were. So uh, my,
0: my understanding with that event is they, I think they were live streaming the main stage for a good portion of the day, but then they also had 30 or 40 or 50 other sessions And of those other sessions, I think they taped 10 10 or 12. I had one of the sessions that got taped, right? And so they taped 10 or 12 of them as a pre-show in in order to be able to put more out. I, again, I think it was one of those that you have to pick and choose. You're not going to have a dozen camera crews running around trying to to stream 70 hours of content over the course of 10 hours. So it, it becomes a... What is it worth for you in order to go to some of those events? And I agree if it's a, you're committing a day of travel upfront, you're committing a day to be there. And then if you can't get back home that evening, then it certainly becomes very difficult. And three days is a lot to commit to a single day of event.
1: Look, if the bottleneck is the the camera crews, they can uh, give me a call and I'll set up some laptops with webcams that will film the events and will be published later. Perfect. But, uh, uh, and so new initiative for Vlad
0: in the- twenty four laptops with webcams. That's how he's just right. gonna stream his whole life.
1: Look, the the reality is I wanted to tune into some of those events and then I simply couldn't because, as you said, they were not filmed. But anyways, moving on from that conversation, live builds. We also had two live builds, one of which we did very early in the year when it came to energy monitoring together with Mm -hmm. uh, Francisco and his crew and I guess like showcasing what they could do, we had an Opto 22 controller that was streaming mm-hmm. the power usage of. If I'm not mistaken, it was his kettle, right? It was.
0: It was I looked, either like his I, I think it was an electric kettle. kettle. Yes, uh, electric kettle.
1: And we capture that in a cloud ignition instance that his yeah. uh, team was bringing up to speed within that one-hour mm-hmm. session, and it was a fairly technical, or I guess like fairly involved session. I, I think that we. Mm-hmm. For better or for worse, I feel that we paint not necessarily the best picture always because there's so much happening at all times and we're trying to make it seem like it is very simple. But I think a lot mm-hmm. goes into the knowledge that they have uh, to be able to make that happen so fast. So for better or for worse, it's a, a double-edged sword where like it's great that it's gotten done so fast. But also I think like we skim through Uh, a lot of information that goes into building those systems.
0: What were your thoughts on that build? So I I guess I I thought it was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. I thought we got to go highlight the the Opto 22 controller. I don't remember if it was an Opto 22 Rio or a Rio Emu. We We saw Benson at SPS, and I think he was saying that the Rio Emu's were one of their fastest moving controllers in twenty twenty three for the energy monitoring unit. We I thought it was interesting for all of our longtime listeners or maybe not longtime listeners. I always try to go drop pointy kind of bite-sized people can sit down and watch this or watch a chunk of it. And and Vlad is but what if we spent twelve hours and did it? I and I will tell everyone, I think my initial concept was what wouldn't it be cool? If we started with everything is in boxes and then it's just a build and then it quickly became, it's just too much time and time commitment in order to reasonably go ahead and do that, especially to be able to reasonably go ahead and do that online over the course of it. I think and we, we've played around with the ideas of doing kind of builds or, or build battles at trade shows or things like that, which I think would be a lot of fun, but that might be a 2024 or 2025 or 2020 never. Uh, Doesn't ICC
1: have is it like, is the format 48 hours or 24 hours? They give them like an
0: assignment? I think it's an hour. They have a build a thought, and they have been doing that in some iteration for six or eight years. But my understanding is that there are a list of requirements and you have to build the things specifically in ignition, right? And the, the difference is we were talking about go wire up some hardware, go write some code for an Opto 22, go send that code via MQTT through a broker to an ignition, ignition on the cloud, an ignition instance in the cloud, not ignition cloud, and go visualize that data. So I thought it was a lot of fun. I think that it was very, it is very difficult. I was impressed. I was impressed both times I saw it. And I'm honestly shocked we could go do it in 50 minutes because I would imagine most people are going to take a day or more in order to, to go get that information up and running. And, yeah, I think most people w- would take a significantly longer period of time to get there.
1: Yeah, I guess I'll admit that I've not seen the, I've not watched it live. I've seen like the announcement of who the companies were that were competing and then yep. the announcement of the finalists. So it would be something interesting that I would be interested in getting involved in 2024. I don't know if we can broadcast that on Manufacturing Hub, but I think it's definitely a thought. The other, Dave, the other live bill that we did was with Siemens, right? So we got out mm-hmm. to a Siemens facility to essentially showcase the industrial edge, be able to pull some data, be able to deploy a virtual PLC. And once again, make that happen within, I believe that we did it in 90 minutes. I don't think it was an hour. It was, like I think 90 it was about minutes.
0: 90 minutes. Yeah. What
1: mm-hmm. were your thoughts on that side?
0: Man, I thought that it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work. I feel because we were doing so much of it with the VPLC and a lot of things were in beta, it became we had arlen and adam as like the two technical industrial edge folks in the us because we had arlen and adam there it became the how do we go and make all of this work and there, there was a little bit of massaging but overall i thought it was awesome we pulled information from a siemens S 7 we pulled information from a micrologix it might have been an 1100 we had initially had a mitsubishi plc in there as well that got pulled out for sake of time because we just literally didn't have enough time to go add another plc in there and built everything into industrial information hub and then from that point did a bit of data visualization and after that we went and we basically yanked out the s7 1500 and built it with a virtual s7 1500 plc on an ipc which was i guess w- one of the most memorable things about that blad is i think five or six times we had to pause from the build to show everyone that this was the hardware we're using and we basically unplugged the s7 1500 and we were running the in theory control on the ipc so uh, overall i thought that was a ton of fun and then i would say secondly we also had to repetitively go through the process of explaining how the S750 as hardware it w- was not going to go away. I feel like John DeTellum was in the comments just like constantly reminding everyone that the S71500 as a piece of hardware is not going away you can still buy it or you can go through the process of buying the the VPLC and so I thought that was awesome I thought it was really good uh, one I thought it was exciting and two I thought it was very good in preparedness level for us to continue those conversations through SPS. Uh, w- what were your thoughts uh, on that build or both builds?
1: Yeah, I think, I guess, uh, the first build I think was very interesting. Again, I didn't think that we were going to be able to pull it off like that quick. Obviously, I had not yeah. worked with uh, Francisco in the past. He has certainly prepared himself and his team very well for the build to make sure everything runs uh, smoothly. On the second build, look, I realized. In addition to my conversations previously about the industrial edge, like the power that it has and the capability and the applications that it offers, I would say that it was easier for me to make that conclusion because we've had so many conversations with the experts prior to doing the actual build. But I could also see how, if you're looking at it for the first time, there's just a lot of moving pieces and it could be confusing where the software resides because ultimately we had like a virtual machine and then we had a virtual machine for the ipc and then we had a connection to the ipc so there were a lot of moving parts i found and as i've mentioned to siemens and you as well like one of my plans for 2024 is to create i want to say like more isolated guides that sort of walk the user through those steps on industrial edge on solace plc right because i think that you cannot Obviously we've combined all of those components into 90 minutes, but I think the virtual PLC is one component that you could be working with and that adds value in its own way versus let's say the IAH can be extracting data from any PLC whatsoever. And that is also its own sort of like component or learning track. And then you have all the other apps that we've barely touched upon, such as you mentioned, visualization, that are also like their own tracks. So I think we showcased all of that in 90 minutes. And I think people got a general idea of what is possible and what sort of transpired during that time. But ultimately there's a lot uh, to unpack in each one of those areas. I would say that definitely interested to do those types of builds in the future. I think that there's a lot of opportunity in our industry. And I think that in many ways, like product teams showcase the features rather than maybe displaying what is possible from a business case or like a user scenario. And me and you understand that because there's ultimately NDAs. It's very difficult to get in an actual facility to film their data being sent to the cloud or an application and be captured in real time. That being said, I think really good demos are displayed at trade shows, but not everybody has access to let's say the process of building that demo, right? And I think that showcasing how do we get to a certain point is just as interesting as it is to see the final product, uh, if I would put it that way. And I think that's why the ICC hackathon is so popular, right? Because we're actually seeing people put something together from scratch. And again, I I don't know the exact format, but I believe they get some kind of a prompt or idea at the beginning. So they don't have any knowledge of what they're going to build. And you can see them go through a process of figuring out what uh, makes more sense. So that's, I think that's my comment on the live builds. I certainly enjoyed them. I think we can perfect the format a little bit better. And obviously we learned also on the, like the technical side, like how to maybe run it better, how to uh, create a better user experience. So we'll certainly incorporate that into any, uh, future builds that we do.
0: Absolutely. I I thought that it was interesting. I think that there's, there will only be more ways to go ahead and showcase everything and all of kind of the, the highlights that we've had over the course of the year. Speaking of showcasing some highlights, you and I had each picked three episodes that we wanted to go showcase and highlight if people are interested in going and taking a listen. So you want to go ahead and, uh, Vlad, looking at your list, if I had thought about it, I absolutely could have picked all three of yours. I don't know if you could have picked three of all three of mine, but I absolutely could. Have. I saw the first two and I'm like, those are absolutely episodes that, that Vlad was going to pick. But you want to go ahead and, and kick off with one of the episodes that you want to highlight?
1: Sure. I'll start with uh, Sean Dotson because he was very early uh, on the podcast in 2023. Mm -hmm. If I'm not mistaken, it was January uh, 11th. I think I saw the tag on YouTube. So Sean has, I guess for context or those who don't know Sean, even though he posts fairly frequently, he has sold his uh, shares. Again, not sure what that uh, deal looked like, but his shares in R&D automation, which is a predominantly robotics Uh, Based systems integrator. And he early in the year has launched a company doing low code, no code solutions, which is why I think he came and spoke to us in part about that specific topic. But we talked a lot about different trends in manufacturing, and he certainly understands the industry really well due to his experience. And so, certainly appreciated his thoughts on what was going to transpire this year as well as five years and beyond. And I think that he puts out, he's got now a newsletter on Substack where he also puts out his different thoughts on various topics in manufacturing. So that was, as you pointed out, episode 92 with uh, Sean Dotson. Any thoughts on your side on that conversation, Dave?
0: Yeah, I, I thought it was an awesome conversation with Sean i i enjoy all the conversations i get to have with sean i think he's really knowledgeable we got to have a, a bunch of kind of different interesting conversations it has been interesting to go watch his concept of loco noco and what it has morphed into and what he has been doing i feel like we will absolutely have to get sean back on the show into the new year to to go talk about more things one of my kind of very particular and specific things that I enjoy about having Sean on is that he's got a lot of practical applications and Vlad and I have talked about this a lot. One of the things that I would like to do in 2024 is go make sure that we hit a bunch more kind of practical applications to get as down into the nitty gritty and down into the dirt of the engineering as we possibly can up from the kind of pie in the sky that sometimes we see. So I super appreciate that about Sean. Uh, so one of the episodes that I had that I really liked um, was episode 105. We had Clint Hummel and Russell Kolachuk at Phoenix Con, uh, both of Phoenix Contact and at Phoenix Contact. So we were talking about, I think it was data-driven sustainability and energy monitoring applications. And so we were talking about the we were talking about what is going on and how they are very much drinking their own Kool Aid and using some of their own particular items in order to go through the process of monitoring energy and what they're doing with that. Uh, a couple of episodes before that, we had Dave Eifert on, and he told me I think one of my most retold stories of the year, Vlad, which was the Phoenix contact Germany for the PLC next lines went and did some energy monitoring, and they took three to five percent of the I/O. They were able to go use that run it through some software that they had created themselves save something like 20 or 25% of the power to the main to the main machines of that line and then go take the, the same data and increase throughput by 10% after passing it to some data scientists so going and being able to talk to Clint and Russell about how they were applying those technologies and how they were applying those technologies very much across the world i thought was was a ton of fun
1: Yeah, I think their their application is really good. Again, I've done some energy monitoring projects in the past for fairly large companies, and I know how complex it can get. So certainly the fact that they're using their own hardware and software to monitor the energy usage of the facility was very interesting. And we actually had a fairly detailed conversation with them on the building side as well, right? Because ultimately control systems are not necessarily the same as you'd find on a plant floor that you would find in building automation for many reasons. And so I believe it was Clint that painted us like a picture of what the differences are. So if you're interested in building automation specifically, I'd highly recommend that episode, which is 105.
0: Vlad, weren't we talking about a, a specific type of controller or something along those lines that you didn't have one of yet? I, I don't remember what it is. And I feel like I shouldn't have reminded you because now the next time we show up in 2024, you're just going to have 12 of them on your desk.
1: I don't remember either, but yes, we did talk about a controller that was specific to building automation and he even gave us some part numbers. And I remember pulling it up in like the browser while we talked, but.
0: I remember that. Yeah.
1: Again, I think from my understanding at least is that the controllers are heavily optimized towards energy monitoring being able to have a mostly digital I.O. So they're lo- lower cost, but also less features than you would find when a typical PLC. But the, the premise is still the same, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What other episode would you like? What What's your next episode?
1: I'll follow up with uh, Matt Paulison. So Matt Paulison was a very interesting conversation. You know that I've mentioned it in many discussions after that. Uh, the reason being is because I think that Uh, And I'll throw in like a few more names. So, or I guess like companies, which are Copia and software defined automation. So similar to Matt, all of them are pushing the idea of being better at industrial software development and management. And I think that idea is extremely important, right? And so what does that like actually mean in practice in many ways, when you look at software engineering right when you look at applications that let's call it run in the cloud and are presented to your like iphone or android phone in your hands they are developed very differently from plc controls hmis SCADA systems right and i think that there's a lot of opportunity to for better for worse to take those best practices and apply them in our industry to number one like speed up software development create environments where you can collaborate a lot better and ultimately reduce the, the outages in delivering software in the industrial automation space. And and some specific examples could be CICD pipelines, right? And so for someone who's unfamiliar, if if you have an application running, again, let's use like an e-commerce platform, for example, and the software engineer wants to push a different application or change the application, there are ways in which you could do that without disrupting current operation, right? Versus in, let's say, PLC programming, you would need to create that application, you would need to schedule downtime, and then you can deploy that code. So it means that there's no way today to create that without causing disruption to the process. Another example would be, And I've mentioned this, and I think Tia Portal has this as a version 17, but concurrent programming, right? So in software, I could pull, let's say, a repository of code and I can work on my component while, let's say, Dave, you pull that same repository and you can work on your component or we can work together in the same area. And then we can merge that code back into the repository in controls as it is not as simple. And I don't believe that it is a limitation of, let's say, the hardware. It's just a limitation of some of the practices and maybe some of the features that the OEMs have released, which is now changing, as I've mentioned, on the TA portal side. And I think Rockwell has something uh, similar. And if I'm not mistaken, Beckoff and BNR have had this for quite a bit of time. So long story short, I think the conversation with Matt was very interesting for that reason, because he's ultimately trying to bring in better practices into the industrial automation software development space. What were your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was a really good episode. I thought it was really fun. Matt had a bunch of very specific pieces of technology that he talked about. Some of which, maybe many of which I had run across in the past, some of which I, I hadn't particularly run across in the past that there was one, the name I don't particularly remember, but basically it took the code and gave you templates of, of HMI screens. And so I thought it was interesting. I have never personally seen that done in a way that gets you to the 100% level. But as we talk about ways to get you to the, in perhaps 80% level immediately or very quickly, I I think we will continue to see those tools, especially as we see, to to Vlad's point, fewer people who have the intrinsic knowledge to go through and and do the builds from scratch. So I think it's gonna be a lot of tools like that. But no, I thought it was a really interesting uh, conversation with Matt as well. I do want to transition to to one of our multi-time guests here. So so we had Bobby Cole on for episode 123. Bobby has also been on for episodes 37 and 79. And I guess first and foremost, I love every time we go bring Bobby on, right? It's always a super fun time to have a conversation with Bobby, I thought it was really interesting because as I went back and looked at my notes, I think it was very much the the beginning of some of the industrial edge conversations we had. I believe Bobby was talking about how he was able to standardize or or efficient engineering, what was the theme and he was talking about how he worked i guess bobby makes lots of, of panels makes lots of machines and he makes them dozens or hundreds of times and so he was leveraging i think it was performance insight to go get metrics on some of these machines and because performance insight is an industrial edge application he was able to go through the process of leveraging it one per machine or one per line and being able to, to go ahead and use it along, along that. And so I thought that was super interesting as we were able to, to go talk about that. And then I think a couple of weeks after that, I, went, I got to go hang out with him at one of his Logics events. And that was a ton of fun. As, as I've told everyone, including Bobby, I feel like you really undersell this thing. He's been doing it for seven years and they've done, I don't know, a hundred or a couple hundred of these events and, and it's a ton of fun. He likes to joke. It's a reason to be able to go drink craft beer and and talk about manufacturing and be able to go write it off on, on taxes or be able to claim it as a business expense. But man, it was, it for me, it was a ton of fun as are all of the conversations uh, we get to have with Bobby. Vlad, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on the conversation we got to have with Bobby?
1: Let me, so Marcus has made a couple of comments based on the previous Matt Paulison episode, and just to respond to those before I talk about Bobby's. Yeah. So software development, I want to say Marcus is definitely right. Uh, software development is very tricky, especially in the industrial automation space, because there's very little standards. And I think it's a very fine balance between again, creating abstractions that don't necessarily add value right to even Dave's point, but you have to think of it. And I think Matt has brought this up. I don't know if it was during the episode or right after the episode. The example is, let's say if you're building a software system of let's say four tanks, right? So you can encapsulate each one of those tanks as being a data model or a software system. And so a lot of times what you'll find in industrial automation is that they will be hard coded. They will be essentially here are four tanks and we've created the four tanks and they're going to run four tanks forever. But what happens in many instances, now we want to add a fifth tank and that becomes a very tedious and difficult exercise because we've not, quote unquote, implemented the right software practices, which is to create that abstraction. So now you can just copy paste that system and now you have five tanks. And obviously, as I said, it's a double edged sword because you should be protecting a system Uh, for the ability to have an extra layer added. But ultimately, it should not be to the point of we have four tanks. It should be capable of adding, let's say, a thousand tanks, right? That would be a bit out of scope and a bit overkill for that system. But I definitely agree with uh, what Marcus is saying when it comes to modularized uh, systems. Uh, On the Bobby Cole side, look, I also really like the conversations with Bobby for many reasons. I would say that one of which is the fact that he's still a very much a practitioner of his craft. I think that he's still very close to control systems. He's very close to integration. And so he understands sort of the landscape of manufacturing as well as what it takes to, as you said, build panels install panels. He's dealing with challenges on uh, the technical side, but also he's able to talk to some of the business and cultural, I want to say, things that he's going through. And again, I'm not going to quote the exact number. I believe that he's got around uh, 10 to 20 people at this stage at uh, Think PLC, or I guess like it's within that ballpark. So I think it's interesting to see the challenges he's experiencing at that size and what his focus is, which is again, building a solid culture, building a foundation. And he talked a little bit about what uh, systems he's utilizing to bring his company to the next level, whether it is on the sales side, the installation side, the engineering side. So I think that's what make that's what makes those conversations with Bobby interesting for me. All right, I will bring. I guess the last. Uh, episode on my side, which is uh, Jim Gavigan. So Jim Gavigan has been on the podcast. I believe there was a third time. I've only added the episodes from this year and uh, this year that was episode 93 and episode one twenty-four. the reason why, and I've titled this even on the list as data, because ultimately again, and Dave, you know, this I've worked a lot or many years in data systems. So I understand in many ways or i guess i have a proxy to understand the challenges that jim is facing both on mm-hmm. extracting the data compiling the right data and then also extracting information from that data to be presented to the end user that makes sense for them uh, to make business decisions on so every conversation with jim at least for me has been very interesting he's working on a on a different stack that i that i'm used to so he's using OSI Pi, Ozi Soft Pi. And so that's been on a side note has been acquired as well. So we'll see how that transition goes. But ultimately, he's still bringing in the data points, I think, in the right way from what he's uh, describing. And I think he's able to find value for the manufacturing businesses as well as for some of the processes through presenting them with the right information. And again, he's shown us some graphs. I'm not going to, from memory, try and... Recall what those specific applications were versus what he showed us a bit off stream and it was maybe private information. If you're interested in data acquisition, data processing, and be able to make business decisions with data, recommend watching both of those episodes, which were 93 and 124. What were your thoughts, Dave?
0: Absolutely. I also enjoy uh, all the conversations that that we get to have with Jim what was i going to say i'm pretty sure he's been on at least one other time he might have been on two times he might have been one of our our four-time guests at this point but no i think all the conversations that we get to have with jim are awesome i think we brought him on a couple of times for manufacturing intelligence and his focus on pi and on manufacturing intelligence is really interesting and then as soon as you get deep into that conversation he'll go hit you with, oh, and I've done all of these other things. And this is my experience working at the Burke Place, And this is my experience working at other places. And so I personally find it a lot of fun. I would say definitely go ahead and have a conversation with Jim. If you haven't, it is certainly a good use of 30 minutes or, or three hours of your time. If you guys are like Jim and I, and we, we can never get off. We can never get off the phone. It is awesome and then i feel like a good way to go finish these recaps is one of our most recent shows are live at sps which is episode 144. and thinking back live we probably should have done that massive round robin that we did the following day to to, as the the finale as episode 145 but but we haven't done that and and now i think my numberings are are off again but no so episode 144 was awesome we had three guests on we had reiner brem who is the ceo of siemens factory automation we had Effersini Tunika, who is the Vice President of Controls for Siemens, and then we had Dr. Gerhard Kress, and he doesn't like to be called doctor, but I've been told, yeah, only three hours, Jim. I have been told that we are contractually obligated to put the doctor in front of it. But no, I would say that those are all awesome conversations, all the way from future visions to artificial intelligence, to TIA portal, to the promise of kind of the next generation. Very cool that we got to go have that conversation. And having that conversation on a very large borrowed stage from Siemens was awesome. And then again, we'll have to go ahead and put up the live episode. Then we had a massive round robin with like 10 or 11 people, all of which I don't think I could even tag in the post because it was just, it was so much fun on some of those lives. Vlad, do you have any thoughts or comments on, on that you want to make sure we hit?
1: Yeah, I think it was a very great episode. I think that the format was a little bit different than what we've done in the past. I think that the conversations were, I want to say, had a lot of substance, ultimately were uh, 20 minutes each. If you haven't watched that episodes, I think that we have hit a lot of topics with each one of those individuals, some of which uh, you've mentioned the topics. I think it was really great to see that even at those levels, the Uh, guests that we had were extremely technical. We talked virtual PLCs. We talked strategies going into 2024. We talked about some of the visions on the AI, the Mendix side. So I think it was a really good episode. I really hope that we get an opportunity to do more of those again in some of the shows in 2024. Again, thanking Siemens for bringing that opportunity to us. And yeah, I, I think it was really good. I think we're going to release at least a couple of clips hopefully of those conversations and that's that's my impression
0: no awesome i i think that was great I want to make sure that we get to put uh, Vlad and I on the hot seat as we put all of our guests on the hot seat for potentially the most uncomfortable series of questions that I will ask Vlad, talking about predictions, right? So I I love predictions. Uh, We ask, I think every guest we've had this year to to go ahead and give us a prediction of what the future is going to look like. And so we want to go offer some predictions that we see of manufacturing for 2024. And I'll go ahead and uh, jump on the sword and kick it off, Vlad. As I've told Vlad, and as I think I've probably said, I very much see 2024 as the year of copilots for manufacturing. And so Microsoft came out with their Microsoft Copilot, and I've seen a number of groups in manufacturing go build copilots. So Siemens, when we were at SPS announced a launch and partnership of a copilot that should be in production right now. And at some point next year, we'll certainly go ahead and get an update of that. So I think it's interesting to go see what code can generally be created from large language models. And then I also was at the Tulip Operations calling and they launched their co-pilot a month or six weeks before Siemens launched theirs um, at the SPS event. And that included a starter kit. And I'm hoping to get my hands on some of those sensors to, to see what that looks like into 2024. I think it is and could be very interesting to go see how we're able to leverage some of these large language models into more of a mainstream into 2024 to remove a bunch of our our manual processes. I will say I've I've seen two or three or four others that are not to the point of being production ready or not to the point of being able to go talk about them yet. And I think it's very interesting how we're able to go leverage these pieces of technology.
1: Mm -hmm. I would say on the co-pilot side, I remain skeptical. I think that the early tools are interesting. I think where they will find a lot of use case is in like understanding and documenting existing systems. Yeah. I think that at least at this stage, I've not seen like complex code written. I-, I think it's only going to get better. So maybe in 2024, we'll see a lot more changes. But again, I've have not played enough with it myself to say for sure how it's going to trend. So I don't have a very, I want to say, solid opinion yet. Do you think that it's going to do more than just create? I want to say raw code. Do you see AI being used in different ways in industrial automation than creating, let's call it, PLC code?
0: I I think so. Yeah. So I personally think that creating PLC code it might be a way to go start using it, but I see wins just looking at documentation, right? Like it literally, if I could go plug a, a computer or a USB stick into something and it just documents my system, but that's a win right there. For almost every facility that I've ever been in, if it'll give me good documentation, that is a win in and of itself. And then beyond that, I look at optimization right? And so we've talked a little bit about digital twins. We've talked a little bit about simulation. I think going and looking at how AI in the future, again, we're still probably 12 to 24 months away from it, can go through and help us on the, op- on the process optimization side or the optimization inefficiency side is interesting. I think going and generating raw code is a win because at some point we're not going to have people who are able to go through and and go write the plc program codes completely either by themselves or they become so valuable we don't want them to spend an extra two hours or 10 hours writing this thing if we could generate it to an 80 percent level and then let them spend the rest of their time going and fixing and optimizing what has been generated at the beginning
1: Yeah, I think it's certainly going to be interesting, right? And I think we, as a community, have a lot of guesses on how it's going to be applied, but we'll have to see Mm -hmm. some maybe like tangible applications. And it's going to be uh, certainly a lot more clear in 2024, like how that fits into uh, the industrial automation space, right? Because I think we've been trying to apply AI to, let's call it data for optimization for a very long time. I would argue that it's not necessarily the models, the problem it's getting that data in a format that makes sense. Uh, That Mm -hmm. is the problem, but we'll see as maybe more use cases come up and maybe just making it more available and more, I want to say easier to utilize will showcase the value to the right people so that they can put more money towards getting that data in order to then leverage the models. Right. But maybe the models are not necessarily the the only driving factor in manufacturing
0: specifically. I agree. What do your predictions look like, Vlad?
1: So for me, robotics, right? So we see an interesting trend and I'll uh, maybe lean against uh, Tesla a little bit. So they're trying to pioneer their humanoid robots, which I think, once again, to my previous comment, is not necessarily going to change how manufacturing is done, but is creating enough hype for Others to either not necessarily be worried, but I want to say may want to beef up their robotics presence or, I guess, like usage. And I'm certainly going to say that probably a lot of people will find that the humanoid robot is not the right thing for a number of reasons. And we can bring in Sean to have a conversation around that. That's a whole other can of worms. I don't think we want to open up, but I think that robotics will continue to grow strong in manufacturing because there's a lot of first of all there's lack of labor there's a lot of demand in i want to say repeatable tasks that to be quite honest with you i don't think anybody wants to do and obviously if you pay them well enough they will do but a robot is the right tool for that job and i think that the costs of robots will continue to be brought down because there's just so much competition in the space right and we talked Again, we had a whole theme of conversations around robotics, but again, the the Chinese manufacturers are bringing that cost down significantly. So I think it's going to put pressure on the entire industry, thus making it more cost effective to purchase a robot for a variety of applications in uh, 2024. What do you think?
0: I agree with that. I think we'll see lots of use cases and applications and continue to see more of those think, as we've discussed on our previous robotics themes, and I'm sure we'll discuss in the future, we've seen thousands and thousands of robots being delivered and driven in automotive. And so the question is, what becomes the use cases post-automotive? And we've seen lots of warehouse applications with the AMRs. We've seen lots of robotic arms. We got to see some five and six and seven access robots on slides and, and on lifts at automate at a couple of other places. And so overall i think that there are a ton of robotic applications i think we've just touched on what those look like for me i will be interested to know i'll be interested to see if that drives down the cost of robotic arms or if the cost of robotic arms are here to stay so a, a cobot costs some number of dollars today if we've got 10 more entrants into the field is that going to drive down the cost of a cobot i 10%, 20%, 30%, or are we going to say a cobot still is X number of dollars today? We see with the AMRs and the warehouse robots, there are more entrants into the field. And because there are more entrants into the field, it drives down. it's driving down the cost and the, the lowers the barrier of entry. I just don't know if we're going to see that with more cobots, with more small robotic arms. And if we do, I think it'll open up a next, kind of a next wave of, it makes sense to go ahead and use a robot for these instances but then it goes back to the how do we sell it is it robots as a service which we've talked about kind of time and time again which probably doesn't make financial sense for the vast majority of large groups out there i think for some small to medium groups it makes sense as a manufacturer maybe not as a integrator or or robot provider But, but it'll be interesting to see the way that goes and i think that also kind of marries with interest rates, if interest continues to stay high, it will be harder to go finance some of those robots in a non-bank application. So I am interested to, to do that. We will continue to have robotics conversations and themes on Manufacturing Hub, if only because Vlad and I love to have those conversations and you guys seem to enjoy them, which is, uh, which is a win-win. For me, next prediction that I want to talk about is, is cybersecurity. Vlad and I went back. I think we've had 12, 14 conversations very much surrounding ICS cybersecurity. You guys can go check out the months of October, both of the last two months, in which we talked nothing about ICS cybersecurity. And when we were over at SPS and in Europe, we were talking with some cybersecurity folks, and, and Europe is very much kind of leading the way in a bunch of things. In October of 24, they have what what they call NIST 2 goes into effect. And it means a bunch of things, but like easy, simple, plain English. It means that if you haven't followed the regulations, including understanding what your assets are and monitoring those assets, you have to pay a significant like millions of euro or millions of dollars worth of fines, which kind of puts teeth into a lot of the hopes and dreams that we've had kind of every month when we talk about cybersecurity is there needs to be a precipice. There needs to be a reason why organizations are going to go spend money in ICS cybersecurity. And I guess short to to truncate it, I, I think that this very much could be. So I'm certainly interested to go see what that means moving into 2024.
1: Yeah, I think, again, like cybersecurity is a very... Interesting topic in its own, I want to say, like regard. I think that we've seen a lot more outages and we've seen an exponential rise of outages. And when I say outages, it's primarily ransomware. There's been an instance Mm -hmm. with, if I'm not mistaken, it's Unitronics, HMIs. I saw something
0: about
1: that. Yeah. Yeah. And I I guess I haven't read too much into the the technical details as to what truly happened, but I think that more Mm -hmm. and more groups are going to be more and more like exposed or easier targets for a variety of reason reasons in the industrial space so paired that with the regulations that undoubtedly in some form will come to the US is going to put more pressure on companies to put these measures in place and again i think that there's there's a lot to be said in the sense that industrial automation equipment is very different from the software applications that we have in other industries. And so I'm curious to see how OEMs will stay on top of protecting this infrastructure, right? Because ultimately I don't think that the manufacturers will create their own systems to mitigate it against those risks. They're going to have to purchase something that is available on the market. And I know there's different solutions, there's different approaches, but I don't think that those I want to say like general solutions will be easy to just apply. They they will have to come from the big vendors that ultimately create hardware and software for the infrastructure.
0: Agreed. I think that'll be interesting. Vlad, you, I know you've got one more prediction. Oh, what, yes, what is your, your last prediction?
1: I bundled this together because I don't think anybody knows what these terms truly encompass <laughs> and where they start and where they stop. IoT slash industry 4.0. I think that we hear a lot about it on at least social media. Uh, We hear a little bit about it on uh, the plant floor. We certainly hear a lot Mm -hmm. about it on the uh, trade show floors. That being said, I think that there's still, uh, at least in the conversations with end users that I'm having, there's still a huge, I wouldn't call it deficiency, but I think there's a big opportunity in, let's say, connecting the devices in the field into a centralized into a manner that allows you to pull that data from those devices, right? And Mm -hmm. we can take an example, something as simple as like a VFD drive that I have sitting next to me in many facilities, even if the ethernet cord is ran to that drive, you'll not see them capture the data that comes out of that drive, right? And if they do display that data, let's say on the local HMI, they're not necessarily able to pull that data for the last year or month or week or, or day. So I think that there's going mm-hmm. to be a lot of opportunity and a lot of changes in how we collect, connect, and connect, collect, and then store data on the plant floor. So again, that could be hardware, that could be software. It could be mm-hmm. sensors that like provide that data versus the very old just digital on and off like door break sensor. I think now there's a lot more opportunity in having more information all around in manufacturing.
0: Absolutely. I I think that's a good and interesting point that that you and I, even internally, uh, continue to debate as to what these are. I I will let everyone know that Vlad and I are are looking at 2024 themes and we're talking about doing an Industry 4.0 and perhaps also an IIoT theme but we wanna talk about what it is and talk basically only about practical applications, right? So if there are practical applications, we wanna go talk to people about those applications and discuss those applications and give people more use cases as opposed to to putting them into just ever growing buckets of is this a IIoT, is this an industry four? Is it a digital transformation? Is it all of the above? Does anyone have a definition? The answer is no, but stay tuned for, for 2024 while we talk about that. So Vlad and I wanted to go give everyone some content recommendations, and I think it's absolutely hilarious because Vlad and I give basically almost completely different content recommendations. I'm not honestly sure if Vlad and I have a single podcast that we listen to, and maybe a non-manufacturing podcast that we listen to, that that there is any overlap. Vlad, you wanna go ahead and, and give your recommendations first?
1: I guess we can do them one by one, just like we've done uh, before, right? So I guess my first podcast is my first billion. So it's two guys that sold very large media companies, one called The Hustle, the other one called The Milk Road. So they're essentially fairly large publications slash like digital newsletters. And Mm -hmm. from, again, you can probably find that information if you look for it, they sold them for millions of dollars. And so now they run this podcast, which is called My First Million, where they have different guests from various startups that discuss their journey to, as the title suggests, making their first million. But ultimately, it's become a lot more than that. So they talk to people of, like I said, different approaches to companies and what that looks like, what they've learned, what they've failed at, what they've uh, succeeded at. So I always like their perspective. I think that my listenership to the of the podcast has been pretty much like every week. And so Mm -hmm. I think it offers very interesting insights if you're either thinking of starting a company, if you're running a company. I'll shout out to uh, Zach Scriven had their hoodie on. I saw like on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago. So there's definitely listeners even in in our space of the My First Million podcast.
0: Absolutely. Vlad has certainly recommended that to me at least a couple of times. I feel like I've listened to maybe one or two of their episodes. So my podcast, one of my favorite podcasts that comes out most weeks is the Mediator Podcast Trivia. And and for some reason I don't love trivia in general, but but I find this podcast super fun. They got a round table and they're doing mostly outdoors type trivia i think it is i think it's a lot of fun it's a trivia show based upon a podcast based upon a netflix show and and a media empire of outdoor things in general and so it is a lot of fun Uh, one of my most fun things is when someone disagrees with the answer to a question and then we just drive ourselves into five minutes of argument no one ever wins the argument so i think that it, it is fantastic i have briefly Uh, flirted with the concept of doing a manufacturing trivia show but then I thought to myself how would I ever come up with enough questions for a manufacturing trivia show and that is why I don't have a manufacturing trivia show at the moment so if you guys are into outdoors things go ahead and and take a listen they have I don't know 50 or 60 of them out I think they started it last year absolutely a great listen to if you're listening to things I'll go ahead next I
1: still like 500 episodes
0: so so that there are like 500 episodes of the show they do super long form content in which they have a guest on or a couple of guests on and they fly people in and they have conversations with that guest but also about some other set topics that they talk about every week for that and then you'll see just about every other week it says trivia at least for the last hundred or so i would imagine every other of the last hundred or so is trivia and if you guys are into the the podcast as a whole absolutely go ahead and listen to the outdoors podcast but i really enjoy the the trivia i think it is a lot of i think it is a lot of fun done in a way that is worth listening to and you guys can play along at home i'll go ahead and and hit the second one so i've actually got a show because we want to do three each and so if you guys are looking for something to watch that is not that is not industry specific over the holidays, Amazon—I think it was the beginning of this year—put out a show called *The Consultant*. I thought it was both really true and hilarious. It's a little dark. Really?
1: you like *The Consultant*? See? Interesting.
0: I thought it was hilarious, Vlad. I thought it was—I thought it was ridiculously. I thought it was ridiculously spot on to what most of the world views consultants as. But I also thought it was dark, so don't go watch it with your kids. Not a child-friendly show. I, I can't As I like lots of kind of one-off shows, I I have lots of things that go on in the background as I am working or as I'm doing other things. So absolutely would go ahead and suggest that if you want to go put something on for, I don't know, six or eight hours over the course of a day during your holidays. Did, Did you not like the show? Did you watch the show and not like it, Vlad? I
1: watched the entire show. I remember liking it in the moment, but I think that I can't remember the ending was like he had the... I don't want to spoil it. Actually, I'm not going to spoil no, no the ending. No,
0: but it, the confusing. It it's confusing and super weird and dark. Yes. But but overall, I overall recommend it. Probably don't watch it as you're going to sleep. I might have watched yeah. one of the episodes as I was going to sleep. Absolutely had the weirdest dreams.
1: Yeah, I yeah, I think it was a good show. Like I said, I, I think the ending. I would I thought it would be something else, and it was not super. Well,
0: not sad. I guess
1: finalized for me, but that's yeah, but that's maybe just me. Anyways, on my side, I will mention the Huberman Lab podcast. So this is a podcast that I've been uh listening to and also watching some of the clips online of uh Dr. Andrew Huberman, who is a professor of uh neuroscience at Stanford. And so long story mm-hmm. short, it's a very it, it is a very popular podcast where he brings in guests to discuss different approaches to, it could be training. It could be your uh, psychological thoughts, like how to improve. Let's say he talks about anxiety. He talks about depression. He talks about how to improve your sleep. He talks about how to improve your mood. So there's a lot of different topics. And I think he goes into a lot of detail with each one of his. They talk about some of the not necessarily unproven methods as well, but I'll mention like a topic that I've been reading up a little bit about cold plunges and why I looked at that episode of his was because under my first million, the guys were talking to a company that got up to 100 million of revenue in 2023, just selling cold plunge tubs, right? So imagine okay. just like a tub that can keep the temperature at, uh, I think it's just above freezing. So it's essentially a fridge. Like it's a, yeah, essentially a fridge as a tub. And so then I'm like, Oh, interesting. How effective is this? And so Andrew Huberman talks with someone who understands that a lot better, obviously like published scientific journals on it and explains the science behind like why it's important. So there's a lot of these like psychological and like physical and like science backed ways on how to do things optimally um, in life.
0: I will say, Vlad. If you like that, maybe take a listen to the show called Sawbones. It, it's a medical doctor and a, her husband, who's a podcaster, and they go fairly in depth about a bunch of kind of strange remedies. I don't know if they've done. Oh, I I don't know if they've done cold plunges. It's more of a show Beth listens to, and I hear in the background. But but they do a whole bunch of strange issues. that that you will find yeah they they do a whole bunch of strange medical things and they go into kind of the medical journal style and actually explain it in a way that that most humans can understand it's not quite as long as as huberman labs but i I think it's 45 minutes or an hour because that is i assume that the time that most people will listen no I will say I'm. I'm going to check out Huberman Labs to to see if they've talked about the replication crisis, which is one of my most favorite crises in science. Which basically is the fact that no one can replicate any experiments. Which basically goes and asks the question: Are social sciences fake? It was a big thing that came out in 2011, and one of my favorite topics to upset scientists. That
1: replicate experiments.
0: Yeah. So Kai last week, a couple of weeks ago, came on with a book about thinking fast and slow with Daniel Kahneman. Yep. And his was basically the last science or social science book that made it to the top of the New York Times bestsellers, because shortly after that, there is this thing called the replication crisis, which basically amounts to some high percentage. I think it's 90. But it might be smaller than that percent of experiments are basically unable to be recreated by other scientists as they go back attempting to recreate those experiments, which basically bodes the question of, is it science if we can't replicate the experiment that we think we must be able to replicate in order to prove our point?
1: Yeah and i'll definitely check out the sawbones i'm looking at the podcast description i think it's interesting as well to see what they talk about
0: absolutely there, there are a bunch of kind of wild things when it comes to when it comes to that and vlad and i wanted to do books as well and vlad i've read an awful lot of books this year like 30 or 40 or something like that and very few of them have any overlap to to anything people want in this show so i'm going to go ahead and recommend chip wars which is a book that i listened to for, for a good chunk of by chris miller and i actually have it i actually have it to go re-rent from the library to probably listen to over the break it's basically talking about how the next slash current gold rush is in microchips and i forget his background but it, it's an interesting background as an economist or as a finance person going through talking about kind of the big war between the U.S. and in China or the U.S. and Asia or the U.S. and Europe and Asia is going to be who owns the most microchip factories. I think it goes through and talks about some of the issues that we saw during COVID and how it is basically the next arms race. I think it was a precipice to, what's the word I'm looking for? I think it's a precipice to a lot of the microchip major factories that we've seen in the process of going up in Arizona and other parts of and other parts of the US. And I believe I saw Chris Lukey talking about it earlier this year, I've seen it a couple of places. And overall, I would recommend it is at least my library. So I would recommend that you guys go take a listen to that.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I guess I'm curious how he articulates uh, microchips being the gold rush, I could certainly see how there's many facilities spinning up in the U S but I guess I'm not sure if he's making the point of it being like extremely important to have the most facilities, or is it maybe in the IP to produce the chips that could be.
0: I think the, the point is basically virtually everything in our lives needs microchips. So from the, the headphones we're talking on to the laptop, to the cell phone to the, the tablets, to the cars, to the TVs, to the virtually everything in our life has microchips. Yes. And if you own the microchips, you can produce. If you don't have microchips, you can't produce or have the things and that could potentially be very bad.
1: But is it the capacity or is it the intellectual property to create even better chips for the future of those devices?
0: I, I believe the point is the capacity to okay. produce, right? So I think pre-COVID, I would imagine north of 80% and maybe 90% of the microchips created were created in uh, across Asia. And during COVID lockdowns and all of the shipping issues, we saw some cars go out to multiple years because they couldn't get the chips. In this industry, we saw PLCs go out to years because people couldn't get the chips. We in fact saw some groups because they saw, I, I believe it was Ford who forecasted that they were going to be way down on car sales because people weren't going to be driving. They went and they cut their forecast of chip allotments. And then when they tried to go increase those numbers into the future, they had already sold the capacity. Right, So if the capacity is sold, we can't make more of the microchips. And so it's the, we need microchips in order to be able to survive it is probably very important and may into the future become the most important resource that a geographical location has in order to be able to produce these microchips
1: yeah no i get it i was partially hoping that you'd say that nfts are the next gold rush. But yes.
0: nfts are the next gold rush flag you heard it here right on manufacturing hub 2021 and a half right Th- that's the year we're in yes go buy your solus plc nfts <laughs>
1: Maybe that's something we released in 2024. Um,
0: <laughs> You're a couple years late, unfortunately.
1: Book on my side, so I've also I, i've gone through 50 or so books this year. But the one mm-hmm. that maybe is, I think, like interesting to bring up was the book called After Steve, which essentially mm-hmm. outlines the transition Apple went through in the last, I want to say, decade. Right? Like they talk about obviously Steve Jobs. They talk about him in the early years at Apple. They talk about Steve, Tim Cook. They talk about Steve Ivy, mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of. I don't say it made me realize that behind like Steve, who is a very like product and sort of design oriented person, there's been a lot mm-hmm. of operational support on Tim Cook's side, right? And so, again, historically, for those who may not know this, Tim was the COO for the longest time, and so he's. In many ways, and and again, I'm not going to completely spoil the book, but he's to some degree ruthless in how he runs manufacturing operations for Apple and demanding the best, not only quality, but also the best, I want to say availability and making sure that the production is run like on time and everything that we discuss in manufacturing. So it was a very eye opening moment to see that it is not purely just about design and it is not just about Steve Jobs, who's been in the spotlight, and it has been a lot more also about their operational excellence and the initiatives that mm-hmm. Tim Cook, for better for worse, ran like in the background until Steve was no longer able to do. So I, I think that book was very interesting in many ways for me to listen to.
0: Interesting. I will. I will have to go add that to to my reading or listening list to see if I can grab that. I think that would be interesting. This has been an awesome show, guys. This has been an awesome year. Before we wrap up, we want to go ahead and give some career advice. Vlad, I will give you the option. You want to go first or last?
1: I'll go first. Okay. So uh, my first piece of advice for someone who is early to mid-career, but I think it, it really applies to anyone a practice pitching and or selling ideas at every stage and what do i mean by that is i think in many ways engineers are not necessarily afraid but i guess maybe lack the confidence to sometimes make their voice heard and i think as your career progresses that becomes more and more critical the ability to get other people's buy-in, it could be your, obviously your direct manager, but it could also be your colleagues, but getting their buy-in that your idea, your project, the hardware software you would like to implement is actually worth it, right? And so Mm -hmm. I think that you can take small steps earlier in your career by saying, hey, I would like to try this different platform. I would like to try even something as small as like different settings. I would like to solve this problem in a different way. And here's the reasons why. Here are the reasons why. And as you progress, it could become a lot bigger than that, right? Like, I would like to, let's say, have access to $100,000 to implement this new platform across this specific production line. And that's going to give us, I don't know, two points in our OE uh, metric over the next six months. And again, I'm just giving like Mm -hmm. random examples, but I think you can certainly scale and gain confidence by pitching at the beginning smaller projects, but then uh, bigger and bigger ones as you progress in your career
0: absolutely i think that is i think that is good advice i have a couple of pieces of advice as, as i was thinking about what's the best career advice i could get i've got two pieces maybe for, for for different people and i would say that might sound like i am saying do two completely different things but you guys are gonna have to you guys are gonna have to hang on with me. As, as I was working with some younger engineers earlier in, in this year, we, we were talking about kind of things that they were doing and things that they weren't doing and kind of goals and plans that they had. And I think the best piece of advice I gave to at least a couple of them was, hey guys, if you are happy doing what you're doing, working on the projects th- that are coming in and you have a bunch of enjoyment and other things outside of work in your life, Just continue to do that, right? Continue to do that, continue to go find happiness and enjoyment outside of your life, outside of work, where you can go do the things that you want to do and you generally don't have to be stressed trying to go do all of these things. And make sure that you go put in the hours that that you are are committed to, but don't stay up until two o'clock in the morning working on a project unless there is an intrinsic benefit for you as an individual person, because you're interested, because you want to learn, because something else. Don't go make that your normal of staying up all night. Go enjoy doing all of the things outside of work, if that satiates your needs and desires. And I would say, if that is you, that is the best piece of advice I can give you, because Vlad and I will tell you not working for someone else and and trying to go do all of the things that the technical the sales the marketing the everything else that becomes significantly more difficult and and yes significantly more difficult and significantly more risky than working an engineering job where you're going and being given a bunch of things i would say if that doesn't satiate your desires do things that make you uncomfortable If, if you are worried about the potential for failure. If you're worried because you haven't done the particular thing in the past, go say yes, go figure it out. Go do things that make you uncomfortable and go do things that make you uncomfortable as often as you possibly can, because that is going to help you get better in basically everything that you're doing. It's gonna go help you find additional confidence. It's going to help you for when you're forced to go make a leap at some point, be it for work, or be it for personal or be it you're making this huge leap in your career and you're not sure if you're ready. If you continue to put yourself in uncomfortable positions, you will certainly be more ready to go do the thing when you are forced to go do that. I like that. I like that. Be uncomfortable, Vlad.
1: I'm pretty uncomfortable in many ways, Dave. I think I, I'm definitely following <laughs> uh, your voice. Um, my other, I, I don't know, We, I was preparing two of these points, so I'm going to throw yeah. my second one. I don't know if you had two of them. And that's going to be own your success, right? So I think that I, again, like I have many conversations, whether it is engineers or managers who are to some extent stuck where they are at. And I think that the first intuition and to some degree myself included is to complain. But at the end of the day, you need to put the, the first foot forward to own your success. Nobody truly cares, or at least not to the extent that you do. So if you don't put the right, I want to say plan and execute on that plan, nothing's going to change. right? And I've had this conversation, again, with, with many engineers who are seemingly stuck or want to move up quicker, want to work on better projects, or are trying to jump from company to company in order to hopefully find something different only to end up in almost the same uh, scenario a couple of months, if not years later. So you need to own your success. You should be able to define what you're looking for, what you want to do and how you're going to get there. And I will also add that negotiating your, let's say, ability to do better projects is obviously defined by your ability to deliver on the current one. So I think it's important also to negotiate from a position of power, meaning when you go for I'd like to work on better projects, you should be able to demonstrate that you've delivered successfully on what you at least promised or would put up to the task for uh, prior to making that request.
0: Absolutely. I, I think that that is also good advice i did pause to attempt to let you say that after the first one but i think that is in fact a perfect way to go ahead and this year everyone thank you for coming to, to hang out i have seen i don't know three or four dozen uh comments here on linkedin plus a bunch in other places and i am confident i still haven't even gotten all of them it's been an amazing year thank you to everyone coming to hang out with us tonight Thank you to all of our guests. Yeah, thank you to everyone for being here with us. We are off the next week or the next couple of weeks. We will be back early next year. We will be back early next year as we go ahead and kick off Manufacturing Hub 2024. I will say if you guys have made it this far, please go make sure you're connected with Vlad and myself. Please make sure you're following Manufacturing Hub Network on LinkedIn. If you are listening on podcasts or listening on YouTube, make sure you hit that follow and subscribe button. Make sure you do the like and the share and all of those other things. Again, I have found that if we ask you guys to do this and then post the episodes at some point, you guys do that and we continue to have more of you listening, which is awesome. I'm excited to have an awesome 2023. Very excited for the 2024, which I imagine will be even bigger than we did this year. But until next year, we'll see everyone soon. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.